welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm Katie Patrizio, and today we're talking about the readings for Christmas, December 25th, 2022. The church offers us multiple gospels for Christmas. Having previously explored the readings from Matthew, we'll dive instead into the classic Christmas tale provided by St. Luke. Though not considered a main character in the Nativity narrative, the figure of Caesar Augustus looms large. We'll get deep in Roman history to paint a picture of the time period's power struggles, and we'll even employ archaeology to flesh out the announcement of Christ's birth. In that announcement, we find an angelic message bordering on a taunt. Christmas might be peaceful, but its announcement means war. Hello, everyone. It's good to be back with you. And it's uh, depending on when you're listening to this, it might be a little bit, uh, a little bit premature. But uh, this is our Christmas episode. Finally, a a uh, Christmas Day lands on a Sunday because I don't, I don't always uh, do s- special episodes for for the High Holy Days. But um, Christmas Day lands on a Sunday this year, and so we find ourselves exploring those readings together. And um, whether you realize it or not, on high holy days like Christmas Day, the church gives us several options of readings. So we have a set of readings for vigil mass. We have a set of readings for midnight mass. We have a set of readings for mass at dawn. And then an entirely different set of readings for mass during the day on Christmas day. So four different possibilities of readings. The the readings for the vigil mass which vigil Christmas vigil masses seem to be extremely popular. So I imagine that many of you will be uh attending vigil mass, but the readings for vigil mass are um there's two different options given, a shorter version and then a long version. So for the gospel it's Matthew 1 uh, verses 1 through 25 for the long version. And then for the shortened version, it's Matthew 1, 18 through 25, which our gospel for the fourth Sunday of Advent, um, just last episode was Matthew 1, 18 through 24. Essentially the same readings for um, the vigil mass. And then for midnight mass, the church gives us Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. And then for Mass at Dawn, we're given Luke chapter 2, verses 15 through 20. So um, not that the Mass readings for Christmas Day were not attractive. Those are from the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Not that those are not attractive to me, but to to do some exploration into the, the kind of stereotypical Christmas readings, um, which we usually turn to Luke for those readings. I'm going to explore with you today the readings for Midnight Mass and Mass at Dawn. So if you smush those together, it's Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, okay? So it's kind of like a double feature. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. So without further ado, let's read those together and then dive right into it. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. This was the first enrollment when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went out to be enrolled, each to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be enrolled with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to be delivered. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. 
And in that region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Be not afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which will come to all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying which had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary kept all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. That was Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 20. So first of all, we're told right away in those days, excuse me, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Kind of a a fun fact, this word here translated decree in Greek is dogma, all right? A word that we're pretty familiar with in the church. It has an ecclesiastical sense to it, this word dogma. But before it had a churchy meaning, it had a, a like an official meaning. And then before it had an official kind of political meaning, it had a it had a place in classical Greek. So it's it's a word dogma that's taken on taken on this churchy meaning, but it's it's rooted in Roman political language. And prior to that, it has its rootedness in classical Greek, where in classical Greek, it can be translated opinion or uh, even like philosophical notion, all right? Now, from the Roman perspective, it takes on a very official meaning and refers to a public decree or ordinance, even one that's specifically given by the Roman Senate, okay? So in those days, a dogma, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Again, it's kind of fun to fill this out because when we hear it now in churchy language, we know that it comes from this this very resonant sort of background. And we'll see it used in churchy language. I know, very technical term here, churchy language. Um, At Acts chapter 16, verse 4, when a quote-unquote decision is reached at the council of Jerusalem. And then there we have that word, dogma in Greek. Okay. So that's the first time it's used in this kind of ecclesial sort of way where the the church appropriates this language, which has this connotation of being very official, a sort of public decree. And it's interesting that it comes from uh, the Senate primarily, right? The Roman Senate, because um, a decree, a dogma coming from a council is all the bishops of the world gathered together, right? And the first of those gatherings happened in Jerusalem, to discuss issues such as kosher law and circumcision, all right? So um, this dogma goes out from Caesar Augustus, we're going to talk about him shortly, that all the world should be enrolled. Now, I'm going to say right off the bat 
that if you do any looking into this section of scripture, you're going to find a ton of arguments about the historicity and the accuracy of this section of scripture. I'm just going to be blunt about that, okay? So essentially, one of the biggest difficulties that we encounter in this scripture is when we compare it to Matthew, because Matthew is going to tell us that Jesus was born during the reign of Herod the Great. Now, here in a moment, when we go into Quirinius and who he was and the timing of his his official role, we're going to discover that that doesn't make a lot of sense if we both have Quirinius, according to Luke, and then Herod the Great, according to Matthew. So that introduces doubt for some people, or difficulty, um, to say it mildly. And then what often unleashes is a cascade of frustrations that people, frequently not very faithful people, will bring against this whole idea of a census of an enrollment in which all the world would be enrolled. So in other words, what I'm trying to say is people who are taking aim at this section of scripture, which you don't have to do much digging to find people taking aim at it, will even take aim at this little three-word phrase, all the world, that all the world should be enrolled. And they're like, come on, Luke. Surely we would have some historical evidence if Caesar Augustus put out um, a decree, a dogma, that the entire known world should be enrolled in a census. And we don't have any evidence of something like that. We have plenty of evidence for censuses. We have plenty of evidence for enrollments. We'll talk about that here when we talk about Quirinius. But I take a moment here to bring up this this target that people have um, for this three-word phrase, all the world, because it is indeed translated, or should be literally translated, the inhabited world. Okay, but as one particular Bible scholar points out, this phrase is often used with hyperbole in official rhetoric of decrees and inscriptions of the Roman Empire itself. Okay, so in other words, the Roman Empire itself in decrees and inscriptions uses this phrase, all the world, in a hyperbolic way, even in official language. All right. So I'm just throwing that out there because this, this Bible scholar I'm, I studied to prepare these, these, this podcast throws it out there as well, that we shouldn't be so frustrated at Luke for using this phrase when the Roman empire uses this phrase as well. Okay. So all the world should be enrolled, enrolled. This implies, um, Uh, a census. Okay. So it's all the world should be enrolled. All the world should be registered is another way that you can read it. And typically the Romans would um, conduct a census either for the purpose of uh, taxation or for conscription for military service. Now the Jewish people were exempt from military service. And so we can likely assume that this census was uh, for tax purposes. Okay. Now, this lines up really nicely with this detail we get at verse 2 about Quirinius being governor of Syria and this being the first enrollment, okay? So let's go into the history books. Let's let's pull it off the shelf, blow it off, right? And ask ourselves, who was Quirinius? And um, what do we know about him as the governor of Syria? Well, to fully set the stage here for Quirinius, we have to go back to Herod the Great, okay? Now, Herod the Great was made the quote-unquote king of the Jews 
in 37 BC by the Roman Senate, all right? And when Herod the Great was made, quote-unquote, the king of the Jews in 37 BC by the Roman Senate, this effectively ended the rule of the Hasmonean dynasty. I'm just trying to paint a picture for you of the centuries and decades before Christ, okay? So we have, um, we have David as king. Solomon inherits his kingdom. The divided kingdom comes along under the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. The, um, the Assyrians take the northern tribes into exile. Then the Babylonian um, empire takes the southern tribes into exile. The northern tribes are never returned. The southern tribes are eventually returned, but they do not rule themselves. They end up um, being ruled by uh, the Greeks. All right. And then for a time, if you recall the books of Maccabees, the Jews are able to throw off foreign rule to an extent and rule themselves. And the Maccabees come to be referred to as the Hasmoneans. So there's a Hasmonean dynasty ruling for for several decades right before Herod the Great takes the throne, okay? So Herod the Great is made king of the Jews in 37 BC by the Roman Senate. He marches to Jerusalem and um, in, in, in battle takes the city, if you will, and deposes the Hasmonean king because he has the support of the Roman Empire. And he rules for quite some time. And it's under his reign that the, the, the building of the, the enlarging and the embellishing of the temple takes place. Okay, there's that reference to the Jews when Jesus talks about um, he's going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. The people are like, we've been, we've been working on this temple for decades. That's what it's a reference to, Herod the Great's work on the temple. Now, um, Herod the Great dies. And upon his death, his kingdom is willed to his three sons. Okay, so it's divided up three ways and willed to his three sons. The portion in the south, which is Judea, is given to his son, Herod Archelaus. The portion in the north, which is Galilee, is given to Herod Antipas. And the northern and northeastern territories are given to Philip. Fun fact here, if you recall, from the Gospels, um, Caesarea Philippi, right? This is the location where um, Peter makes his confession. Uh, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. If you've ever been to the Holy Land, when you go to Caesarea Philippi, it's a pretty long bus ride because you go way up north. It's right on the border with, um, I believe it's Lebanon, way up north. And um, this is, the town is called Caesarea Philippi because it was um, it was created, if you will, it was built by Philip, Herod the Great's sons, Herod the Great's son, Philip, and he named it after Caesar, Caesarea. But there was another Caesarea on the coast, and so he named this one Caesarea Philippi after Caesar and himself. So, anyways, all to say that Philip had the northern and northeastern territories. All right. Now, what ends up happening? Herod Archelaus, who rules over Judea, and I should say here for a moment that Herod Antipas, we're going to see him later when Jesus goes to trial, right? And Pontius Pilate sends our Lord to Herod Antipas because he says, Pontius Pilate says, he's a citizen of Galilee. So even though Herod Antipas is in Judea, in Jerusalem at this time, 
He's only there because of the Passover. He's not there ruling, all right? Which is why Pontius Pilate, in attempt to kind of wash his hands, as as he says, of Jesus's um, death, sends him to Herod Antipas, who's in town for the Passover, because he's the the Tetrarch of Galilee, all right? Anyways, okay, filling out this historical picture for you. Archelaus is not like a, a, a favored ruler of the Judean people. And in the year 6 AD, both Jewish and Samaritan aristocrats, you know it must be pretty bad if both the Jews and the Samaritans are in agreement on this. Jewish and Samaritan aristocrats, according to historians, go to Rome and they bring charges against Archelaus to Caesar Augustus there in Rome. And we're not sure what exactly they said about Herod Archelaus, but it must have been pretty bad or pretty concerning because Caesar Augustus immediately recalls Herod Archelaus to Rome and then banishes him to modern-day France. And it's at this point that the province of Judea in the south comes under direct Roman rule, okay? It's not going to be ruled by a mediator anymore. Galilee will continue to be ruled by a mediator in Herod Antipas, but Judea is going to get direct Roman control. And this is when Quirinius is appointed to an an official position. He's made legate of Syria, all right? And Judea then becomes a province of Syria. Now, as an aside, um, Quirinius is made legate of Syria, of which Judea is a province, but a prefect at this time is also appointed over Judea. I just throw this out because when we get to, again, the passion narratives, we're going to read about Pontius Pilate, who is the procurator or prefect of Judea. And this is the this is the role he has. It would have been under the legate of Syria, all right? So Quirinius is appointed as legate of Syria and Judea becomes a province of Syria. And one of Quirinius's first duties as ruler over this province of Judea is to carry out a census for the purpose of taxation. This makes total sense because previously it would have been Herod Archelaus's job to collect taxes and then send them to the Romans. But Herod Archelaus has been deposed. And so the Romans themselves are going to start collecting their own taxes. And to do this, they're going to carry out a census. Okay. Now, some people will also um, have beef with Luke saying that for this reason, Joseph must go to his hometown of Bethlehem. But as Joseph Fitzmaier, a biblical scholar says, he points out that there's not a ton of evidence for this, but there is some evidence specifically from Greek records that we found in Egypt. (laughs) We, you know, using the royal we there, that humans found. Greek records found in Egypt of a census that was according to house, okay? According to house. In other words, this idea that someone would be expected to travel to their quote-unquote house, to their home, in order to be enrolled in this census. So it's not an entirely out-of-the-question idea that this would take place. Now, what we're going to find in this reading here in chapter 2 is a, a, a kind of juxtaposition between the rulers of the earth and the true ruler, all right? And we'll get into that with the the angel's proclamation to the shepherds. It's really, really cool stuff we have in there. But we do get this juxtaposition immediately, subtly here at the very beginning through this idea of the people needing to be enrolled. Rome 
requiring a census, okay? Why do I say this implies a subtle juxtaposition? Precisely because if we're familiar with the Old Testament, we would recall that according to the Old Testament, only God can legitimately number his people. Only God can legitimately number his people. So for example, in Numbers chapter one and in Numbers chapter six, we see God carrying out a census. In fact, that's essentially what the entire book of Numbers is. It's God numbering his people. So God is allowed to number his people, but it gets problematic when other people, even if they're Israelites themselves, begin to number God's people. So if we turn, for example, to 2 Samuel 24, verse 9 and following, we read this. Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. And then verse 10 tells us this, but David's heart smote him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, I pray thee, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolish, foolishly. All right, so David understands that it's not right to number the people. Even though he is the ruler of the people, it belongs to God to number the people. We see... Um, starker language here if we turn to 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1 and following where we read Satan stood up against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Satan stood up against Israel and incited uh, David to number Israel. Okay, whoa, that's intense. So in other words, Chronicles is essentially commenting on 2 Samuel 24 and saying that the reason that David numbered Israel is because Satan enticed him to number Israel. So God is offended when anyone besides himself decides to number his people. And we're going to see how he's he's going to respond to this this frustration. It's not it's not merely this frustration. It's not as if the only reason, you know, the Messiah comes is to save the people from being numbered. But nonetheless, it's, it is this juxtaposition, as I have been describing, between the ruler of the world and the true ruler. Very, very fascinating. Okay, so all went to be enrolled, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of and lineage of David to be enrolled with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. A couple comments on these few verses. We'll notice in the, in the gospels that often, um, not just in the gospels, in scripture, people um, are, talk about going up to Judea or up to Jerusalem, or in this case, up to Bethlehem, which is essentially like right next to Jerusalem. What's going on here? Well, Judea is in the South. And so if you're talking like, cardinal directions, it doesn't make sense for people to talk about going up to Judea. But Jerusalem and Judea in general is at a higher sea level. And so there's a sense in which when you're you're walking there, you're certainly going up and you can tell you're going up. But there's also a sense in which um, people talk about going up to Jerusalem or going up to Judea because it's it's where it's God's city. It's where um, it's where God's presence is, right? And so there's a, a spiritual sense in which you go up to that place. Okay, 
We're told that David goes to Bethlehem. Why? Because he's of the house and lineage of David. Sorry, did I say David? Joseph. (laughs) I don't even know what I said. Joseph goes up to Bethlehem because he is of the house and the lineage of David. Why is this important? I think we've touched on this in recent podcasts. That the idea here is that um, David, or excuse me, Joseph is not just like a, a second cousin, like eight times removed from David or something like that. The idea is rather that Joseph is indeed like heir to the throne. He's he's crown prince in line for the throne, and um, this this becomes obvious. Brant, Dr. Brant Petrie will point this out that we're told that he's not just of the lineage of David, but of the house of David. And if someone was to come up to you, I can't remember if I've used this analogy recently. Um, If someone was to come up to you and say, I am of the house of Windsor, what would the implication be? The implication would be that they are implying that they are royal, they're royalty, they have royal blood. And so for Luke to call uh, Joseph of the house of David is to say that he is royalty, not merely that he has like got some relationship to the royal, the royals, but he is in fact royalty, okay? You'll notice here that Luke calls Mary his betrothed. Now, this is a little bit confusing insofar as, like we looked at in our last podcast, Mary at this time has been taken into Joseph's home. So they've entered into the second stage of marriage. And so why does Luke say that Mary is still betrothed? I surmise that Luke says Mary is still betrothed to show that there has been no consummation of the marriage, even though they have actually come together and have entered into that second stage of marriage, there has been no consummation. Our lady remains a virgin, right? That's why I believe that Luke still calls her betrothed, even though he full well knows that Mary and Joseph have entered into the coming together stage. Okay. So, While they were there, according to verse six, the time came for her to be delivered and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's again comb through some of these details. First of all, we are very used to this idea of um, our Lord's birth happening um, in haste, which I guess in many ways... um, that could or could not be the case. But when I refer to our Lord's birth happening in haste, we have this idea that Our Lady and St. Joseph are on the road to Bethlehem and they've like just gotten into town and Mary is going into labor and Joseph is going from door to door, knocking on doors and there's no room, there's no room, there's no room. And so Mary's like, "Eh, St. Joseph, Joseph, (laughs) and that's, that's St. Joseph. You know what I mean? Joseph, like, we, yeah, I, I got to get down from this donkey. We got to go somewhere. And in their haste, they find a cave in which Our Lady gives birth. Now, I don't want to completely dismiss those ideas because we don't necessarily have evidence that does de facto completely dismiss those ideas. But I will say that that particular view comes from the apocryphal gospel of James, which says some other things that are inconsistent with the gospels. And I don't just mean like factually inconsistent. I mean, in spirit, they're inconsistent. Like the things that they say about Jesus are pretty inconsistent with what the gospels say. 
And so what we read about in the the the, the proto-evangelium of James should be mm, taken with a grain of salt, all right? Again, not we don't we don't necessarily have to completely ignore it, but take it with a grain of salt. And um, there are other reasons to believe that this is not actually what took place. For one, if we interpret Luke literally, it says here at the beginning of verse six, while they were there, the time came for her to be delivered. And so there's a sense that they've been there, they're already there, and while they were there, the time came for her to be delivered. Now, we can jump ahead here for a moment to this idea of there being no place for them in the inn. This verb or this this noun, this Greek noun translated in, in Greek is kataluma. And it does not necessarily refer to an inn like a, like a, a hotel inn, right? In fact, it can also be translated as guest room. Interestingly enough, we see it one other time in the Gospel of Luke, and it's at the preparation for the Passover, which at which Jesus will celebrate the Last Supper. And it says they go and prepare a, 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 in a guest room, in a kataluma, okay? Now, it was typical for um, Jewish Palestinian homes to have a room in them that was for guests. And so some scholars believe that what happened here is that Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem. Joseph is from Bethlehem, so he probably has relatives, at least distant relatives in Bethlehem. They're staying in Bethlehem in the Kataluma, in the guest room of someone. And perhaps, likely, there are other people staying in this guest room as well. It is nighttime. How do we know that? Well, we can assume that because when the angels appear to the shepherds, they're keeping watch over their flock by night. So it's nighttime. Our lady goes into labor and perhaps in order to avoid um, waking and disturbing the others who are sleeping in the Kataluma, they went to another part of the house, which was the stable area. And there our lady gave birth to Jesus. All right. So again, I'm not going to completely smash your um, perceptions or the perceptions that most people, the romantic perceptions that most people hold of how our Lord's birth came to be. But there's there's some reasonable um, explanations or reasonable reasons in order to believe that um, this kind of other idea of, um, yes, him still being born in a stable. Yes, that could have even been a cave. I mean, if you go to the Holy Land, um, and you go to the Church of the Nativity, they're going to take you to a cave and say this is where Jesus was born. But when you go to uh, the Basilica in Nazareth, which is built over Our Lady's home, they're also going to take you to a cave because people lived in caves um, in in that time period a lot. So um, this doesn't this doesn't um, compete with an idea that Jesus indeed was born in a stable among animals potentially, and that he was born in a cave, for example. But it does uh, it does bring up the, the questionable idea that they entered the 
the village of Bethlehem in haste. And because there was no room at the hotel, they had to go out into uh, a cave or a stable in order to give birth. I should also note that there is a, a time when Luke uses a word more particular for in, and it's in the parable of the Good Samaritan, okay? That um, uh, the, the Good Samaritan comes across this man who's been beaten and takes him to an inn to be cared for. He doesn't, St. Luke does not use the word kataluma when he talks about the Good Samaritan taking the man to an inn, okay? He uses a different word. So that's another, another argument for a better translation and a better perception being guest room here, all right? So um, what else do we have going on here? Um, we're told that Our Lady gives birth to her firstborn son. And as it is in English, in Greek, it's also a combination of two words, protos and technon. Protos means first and technon means child. Now, some people will be surprised that the Greek word monogenes is not used here because monogenes in the Greek version of the Old Testament is the word used to refer to Isaac. However, there's another time in the Greek Old Testament, specifically at Exodus 4.22, where we do get this word, uh, this, this double word, protos technon, and it is when we read um, about uh, the Lord claiming for himself the people of Israel. Exodus 4.22 says, Israel is my firstborn son, all right? So there's a way in which, oh, we could be a little disappointed that we don't get that, that word that links Jesus to Isaac, monogenes. But we do indeed get this word that links uh, Jesus to the people of Israel at Exodus 4.22. We should also note that just because Luke says he is her firstborn does not imply that Our Lady has other children. So many scholars will point to archaeological evidence for this. There's, um, there's um, an inscription that was found in which um, at, a, at a burial location in which a uh, woman who had died in childbirth is said to have died giving birth to her firstborn son. Now, that doesn't make any sense if firstborn implies other children. Rather, what firstborn simply implies is the idea that Jesus would inherit all the rights of the firstborn. Okay, Jesus would inherit all the rights. And we could say also the responsibilities of the firstborn, right? Because according to Jewish law and culture, the firstborn is to be offered to God, to dedicated to God, okay? So Our Lady gives birth to her firstborn son. She wraps him in swaddling clothes, which is not an unusual thing to do. But there is a one fascinating look to the Old Testament that we find here, one fascinating nod to the Old Testament. If we turn back to Wisdom, uh, chapter 7, verses 4 through 6, we read this. This is um, Solomon speaking. I was nursed with care in swaddling clothes, for no king has had a different beginning of existence. There is for all mankind one entrance into life and a common departure. <laughs> I love it. I was nursed with care in swaddling clothes for no king has had a different beginning of existence. There is for all mankind one entrance into life and a common departure. It's as if um, 
God is saying, uh, if it was enough for the first son of David to be born and wrapped in swaddling clothes, even though he was to be king, then it's enough for me to be born and wrapped in swaddling clothes, even though I am going to be a king and I am a king above kings. So this beautiful nod to Solomon and the son of David in this image of Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes. He's laid in a manger, which is a word for a feeding trough, okay? Um, Fascinating, I'm sure many of you have heard this before, fascinating Eucharistic overtones going on here, both with the image of the manger and the setting in Bethlehem. Why do I say that? Because Bethlehem means house of bread. It's again, this combination of two words in Hebrew, beth and lechem. Beth means house and lechem means bread, beth lechem. And so our Lord is born in the house of bread and he's laid in a feeding trough. Another fun fact, again, if you haven't been able to go to the Holy Land, when you go to the, the, the church of the nativity and you go down to the cave in which our Lord was born, you will find um, behind protective glass, the manger. And it is not, you know, something built of wood. In fact, it is, um, it is, uh, kind of carved out, if you will, from the side of the cave. And this was typical at the time. So the cave served as a sort of stable and um, carved out from the side were these feeding troughs. And so we get the image of our Lord being placed in this manger in the side of the cave in which he was born. And uh, we already touched on this idea of there being no place for them in the inn, particularly meaning my argument um, and uh, other scholars will back this up, um, that there was no place for them in the guest room, okay, the, the kataluma. Let's continue on here to kind of the second part of our gospel reading, verse 8 and following. We're told, in that region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Two things going on here. You've probably, again, heard before this idea that shepherds were not held in high esteem, in Jewish culture. That is very much true. So unlikely people are being singled out here. And not only that, but a particular um, group of this unlikely people are being singled out. So this phrase, keeping watch over their flock by night, implies that there were different watches of the flock. And so not only are the shepherds in an unlikely sort of manner singled out to receive the announcement of our Lord's birth, but the ones on the night shift are singled out to receive the message. And I don't know if it has a a one-to-one connotation like it does for us, but there is certainly a sense in which like, think of, think of a a job that's not held in high esteem. Um, For example, like a, a janitor, which, you know, nothing against janitors. Some of the nice people, nicest people in the world I know are custodians, but it's just a fact that for whatever reason, custodial work is not held in high esteem. That's why I have even more respect for people who work in that, uh, in who labor in that work. Um, but let's, let's take, for example, yeah, we have a custodian. So it's one thing to be a custodian, but if you're a night shift custodian, there's even more of like a, a connotation of, I don't know, just, I don't, I don't know. Like, uh, just, just not being, you know, you're not, you're, you're doing a blue collar job. It's not a white collar job and you're not even working during, during the day you're working at night. There's a connotation sometimes that 
People who work at night are people that can only get work at night, right? So people would rather work during the day. And so if you can't get work during the day, you end up getting work at night. And so again, this, again, I don't know if it's a one-to-one connotation, but it's certainly an idea that's prevalent in our culture, unfortunately, as well, that working the night shift um, has a, has a certain connotation to it. So it's the night shift shepherds that receive this announcement of the Lord's birth. Let's read it together. Verse nine and following, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, be not afraid for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which will come to all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Real quick, before we get into the content of the angel's message, we're told this detail that the glory of the Lord shone around them. So an angel of the Lord appears to them and the them is the shepherds. And then the glory of the Lord shone around them. Okay. So it's not just the glory of the Lord shining around the angel, but it appears from Luke's description that the glory of the Lord is shining around the shepherds. Now, this is an intense image, actually, whether whether we realize it or not. We can look to a couple places in the Old Testament, um, two places in Exodus and one place at Leviticus to get a feeling for what this glory of the Lord may have looked like. Exodus 16.10 says, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Okay. The glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Exodus 24, 17 says this, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Whoa, okay. So we have cloud, this idea of a cloud and a devouring fire. At Exodus 40, 34, we get the image of the cloud again. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, okay? So the shepherds are getting a, uh, a theophany, all law, the Old Testament and old, the Old Testament people. And you would imagine as, as Jews, even if they're night shift shepherds, probably have some knowledge of the Lord appearing to his people in this way. And look at them uh, seeing the Lord in his glory, the glory, of, the glory of the Lord shining all about them. Understandably so, we're told that they are filled with fear. Now let's break down here verses 9 through 12, which is the announcement to the shepherds. This announcement follows the pattern of previous announcements that we've had here in our gospel according to Luke. So there's four elements that have been present in the other announcements, which are also present here in the announcement to the shepherds. One, the appearance of the angel of the Lord. Two, the fear on the part of the shepherds. Three, the heavenly message, including the injunction, do not be afraid. And four, the giving of a sign of reassurance, all right? So, for example, in both the Annunciation to Zechariah and the Annunciation to Mary, we have these four elements. What is lacking, there's one element lacking in this Annunciation to the shepherds, and it is the objection. Now, objection might be a strong word when we refer to the Annunciation to Our Lady, but she does ask for clarification. Zachariah indeed seems to abject outright. The shepherds do neither. They do neither. We can also note 
that just like Zachariah has a hymn and Our Lady has a hymn, we also have a hymn of praise here in our Annunciation to the Shepherds. Glory to God in the highest and on, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. So just like the Magnificat and the Benedictus, the Magnificat of Our Lady and the Benedictus of Zechariah, we have the Gloria here of the angels in the announcement to the shepherds. Now, I want to comb through um, this, this announcement, like the, the phraseology and the content of this announcement. But in order to, to give you the full weight of this announcement, we have, to act, we have to actually turn back to, to Roman history and to Roman context, okay? So I said it towards the beginning that our gospel sets up a juxtaposition between the rulers of the world and the true ruler. This becomes very, very clear here in the angel's announcement. So I'll read the angel's announcement again for you. And then we're gonna talk about the figure of Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor, the Roman emperor, emperor at this time. The angels say, be not afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which will come to all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now let's turn back to what we know about the current, at this time, the current Roman emperor. His title is Caesar Augustus. His, his born name, his born given name is Octavian, okay? So Caesar means king and Augustus is his title. Augustus as a title was granted to him by the Roman Senate in 27 BC, and it can be translated as majestic or holy. So he's, his name, Caesar Augustus, means like king majestic, king holy, all right? Augustus, you've maybe heard before that the Roman emperor was considered to be a god. Augustus was the first emperor, the first Roman emperor to encourage this idea, to encourage a quote-unquote cult to deify his name and his reign, all right? He was the first, the first um, Roman emperor to, to encourage this idea. In an interesting but kind of weird tidbit, um, according to legend, Augustus, and there's a legend um, similar to this in regards to Alexander the Great, but according to legend, Augustus, was miraculously conceived by a serpent. Oh, okay. That, I mean, like, weird, right? But, but, whoa. So the, the ruler of the world, and in some ways, like, when you think of the, the scope of the Roman Empire, you, you know, that, that hyperbolic idea of the, Roma, the, the ruler of the whole inhabited world, right? The, the ruler of the world is, is supposedly conceived miraculously by a serpent. The ruler, the true ruler of the world, Jesus Christ, is miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit. Fascinating. Um, Augustus is, uh, he's associated with um, uh, what's called the Pax Romana, Okay, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And so in many ways, um, he's looked upon in an endearing sort of way as bringing about stability and peace to the Roman Empire. Before we dive into some interesting spiritual implications from that, 
I want to also draw in, and this will fit, this will make it an uh, obvious connection with the angel's announcement. I want to draw upon two um, inscriptions that we find from archaeology that tell us about Caesar Augustus. One of them is in regards to his birthday, okay? So it's an inscription speaking about the birth of Caesar Augustus. And this inscription, which is dated to 9 BC, says that, quote, the birthday, referring to the birthday of Caesar Augustus, the birthday, his birthday signaled the beginning of good news for the world, end quote. So Caesar Augustus's birthday signaled the beginning of good news for the world. And that um, Greek word translated good news is euangelion, uh, uh, evangelization, right? The, the speaking of good news or the good news itself, euangelion. So there was this idea that Caesar Augustus's birthday was the beginning of a good news for the world. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will come to all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. That's the first inscription. There's another inscription that's preserved in the British Museum, which reads this. Augustus is the father of his divine homeland, Rome, inherited from his father, Zeus, and a savior of the common folk. His foresight not only fulfilled the entreaties of all people, but surpassed them, making peace for land and sea. While cities bloom with order, harmony, and good seasons, the productivity of all things is good and at its prime. There are fond hopes for the future and goodwill during the present, which fills all men so that they ought to bear pleasing sacrifices and hymns. If you take out the first, if you take out the first sentence, you can in many ways use this description to refer to Jesus Christ. I'll read it again for you. It's kind of long, but I'll read it again for you because it's interesting. And then we'll, again, we'll read the angel's announcement. So this is a word for word quote. I mean, obviously the quote was in Latin. This is a word for word English quote of this inscription. Augustus is the father of his divine homeland, Rome, inherited from his father, Zeus, and a savior of the common folk. His foresight not only fulfilled the entreaties of all people, but surpassed them, making peace for land and sea, while cities bloom with order, harmony, and good seasons. The productivity of all things is good, and at its prime, there are fond hopes for the future and goodwill during the present, which fills all men so that they ought to bear pleasing sacrifices and hymns. Be not afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which will come to all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. This is the sign of the great, the great king who is born on this day. This lowly sign of a little baby wrapped in swaddled and sleeping in a feeding trough. And so already we get the we get the the substance of the juxtaposition because it's not as if our lord just presents himself as different from Caesar Augustus he actually lives differently from Caesar Augustus 
he enters the world as a child. His, he, he is so powerful that he can actually enter the world with no power and yet still retain his power. That's how powerful God is. It's a fascinating idea. And so we have here Caesar Augustus on one end and we have Jesus Christ on the other end. And you, you got to know that the angel's announcement is setting these two up in juxtaposition, one to the other. It's, almost, it's like the angel is really like calling out the, the Roman um, view of Caesar Augustus and the way in which they held him in such high esteem. I want to go back to this Pax Romana, though, because there's something attractive about it, right? Um, this inscription says that Caesar Augustus makes peace for land and sea, that cities bloom with order, harmony, and good seasons, that productivity of all things is good and at its prime, and that there are fond hopes for the future and goodwill during the present. And you read that and you're like, that sounds really nice. Like maybe Caesar Augustus can run for president in the United States. <laughs> um, but But we should know that the Pax Romana is a sort of false peace insofar as it's really a temporary peace. And that what the Lord wants to give us is a peace that is eternal. And this eternal peace comes from eternal salvation, all right? And so we should look in some ways with suspicion upon earthly peace. Because what does earthly peace unfortunately often lead to? It leads to uh, a sort of um, lackadaisical kind of just sitting by, a sort of apathy, right? We see this all throughout the lives of the saints, that the saints often rise up in times of conflict. Why? Because conflict and suffering requires us to either give up in despair or to, to, to rely completely on God. And so we should not necessarily look for ease of living. And we should not necessarily hope for ease of living. What we should hope for is what God gives us. What we should hope for is that which God gives us. Because what God is going to give us, whether it is peace or conflict, is what we need precisely at that moment in our life in order to grow closer to him. So if we spend our life always fretting over a lack of peace, whether it be in politics, whether it be in um, uh, our, our city, our state, our country, our military, whether we are in war or whether other countries are calling us out and threatening us, if we fret about those things, it betrays this idea that what we are seeking after is not the peace of Christ, but this kind of Pax Romana. So do we want what Caesar Augustus can bring or do we want what Jesus Christ can bring? Surely we want what Jesus Christ can bring. This also brings in this idea of um, St. Ignatius's idea of the discernment of spirits, okay? So essentially, if you can boil it down, St. Ignatius of Loyola says that for someone who is on the path of righteousness, the, the, the spirit moves in peace and comfort and consolation 
and the evil one moves in anxiety and disruption, all right? That's how we can identify the different spirits acting upon us. That's for a person on the path of righteousness. But for a person who's on the path to perdition, it's the opposite. For a person who's on the path to perdition, the evil spirit will comfort and will bring peace and consolation. And God will afflict, all right, in order to bring about conversion. And so if we are embedded in whatever level or degree of worldliness and we are finding comfort in it, we need to ask ourselves whether this comfort actually comes from God or whether it's coming from the evil one in order to placate us and keep us in our state of of hoping for the Pax Romana, the worldly peace, instead of hoping for the eternal peace that only Jesus Christ can give, right? Just some food for thought as we see how the Gospels um, juxtapose the, the peace of Caesar Augustus and the peace of Jesus Christ. So the angel delivers this message to the shepherds. And it tells us that verse 13, um, that suddenly there was this, uh, with with the angel, a multitude praising God, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. And then we're told at verse 15 that the angels went away from them into into heaven and the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they're just outside of Bethlehem. So they're saying, let's go into the city of Bethlehem and to see what the Lord has made known to us. So at verse 16, they go with haste and they find Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now, what's interesting about this is, again, I already pointed out that the one kind of element missing from this annunciation narrative is the objection. So the shepherds, um, not only do they not object, but they immediately go with great faith in order to verify that which they have heard from the angels. This is in contrast, for example, to Zechariah, or even for in contrast, for example, in contrast to like King Ahaz that we looked at at Isaiah seven fourteen, um, last podcast episode, right? So God says, uh, "Ask for a sign," and He's like, "No, I don't want a sign." Why does He not want a sign? Because He doesn't want to follow God. So, uh, in contrast to those two men, for example, the shepherds go with haste to verify. What the Lord says, it, it, it shows the faith that which they which they have. Is it not true that sometimes we don't want to verify what the Lord tells us because we're worried that it won't be true? And this betrays a lack of faith. Sometimes we don't want to verify what the Lord tells us or promises to us because uh, we're afraid it won't come to be true. And this betrays a lack of faith. It's also interesting that we're told that they went with haste We had another place in Luke's gospel previously where we saw someone going with haste. It was Our Lady who was going with haste to Elizabeth. The the sign given to Our Lady after the annunciation from Gabriel was that Elizabeth would be pregnant. And Mary sets out from that annunciation with haste to verify that sign. And the shepherds do the same here. They're given the sign of the child lying in a manger and they set out with haste in order to find this child to verify the sign. Um, We're told that uh, they made known all that had been told to them concerning the child. At verse 18, we're told that all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. This is also a kind of interesting idea because 
we've already had Mary, Joseph, and the baby named here at verse 16. But then we're told all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. So there's a sense in which there's other people besides Mary, Joseph, and Jesus there. So again, which could potentially confirm this idea of Our Lady having given birth in a family home. And there would have been privacy given during the time of birth. But once Jesus is born, perhaps the rest of the extended family comes to to see him, right? Just a conjecture, but throwing it out there. Um, And we're told at verse 19 that Mary kept all these things, pondering them in her heart. Literally, it says in Greek, she preserved all these words. She preserved all these words. And pondering them, what's translated here, pondering them, literally means she tossed them together in her heart, which I think implies that we can make a solid metaphor for prayer through the image of tossed salad. (laughs) All right, so literally she preserved all these words, tossing them together in her heart this wonderful image of prayer, all right? Mulling over what she's experiencing and trying to make sense of it in light of what God shows her. Um, it's not the same exact word that we see in the Greek version of Genesis thirty-seven eleven, but in Genesis thirty-seven eleven, we get a similar Greek word where it talks about Joseph um, kind of, keeping these things after um, Jacob, excuse me, Jacob keeping these things after Joseph recounts um, the dreams that he has been having of how he'll be exalted above his brothers. All right. So Joseph has these dreams that he'll be exalted above his, his brothers. He shares these and Jacob, we're told, keeps these in his heart. It's not the exact same Greek verb, at Genesis 37, 11, but it's the same idea. And it's, it is actually the exact same Greek verb that we find at Luke two fifty one. So in just a few verses where we're told that his mother kept all these things in her heart. This is after the finding of Jesus in the temple, right? His mother kept all these things in her heart. So we have this kind of parental pondering of the greatness that is spoken of, of the child. Okay. Between the, between these two, these two verses here in these two words. We started our, our Advent together focusing in on this idea of prayer that is the place of intimacy with God and this idea of what are, what are we waiting for? What are you waiting for? It's beautiful that in many ways our, our Advent season closes out with these Christmas readings and um, in many ways closes out with verse 19 here, Mary kept all these things, pondering them in her heart. She is for us the image of prayer, the image of meditation, the image of contemplation, and the image of entering into the mystery with an open mind and an open heart in order to receive all that God desires for her and for her child and for her children, who are you and I, uh, adopted in her spiritual motherhood and able to draw close to that pondering heart. We can draw close to that pondering heart and in drawing close to it, we will receive many graces in prayer in order to understand more fully the mystery of our own life and the mystery of Jesus Christ. He who brings a peace that is far greater than the Pax Romana, let us not settle for what is worldly, but settle for what is from above. 